This podcast episode is from a recorded talk from our USC CCS China Studies webinar series. Today, it's my great honor to invite Professor Frederick Lau to give an interesting talk, one of the most famous Chinese music pieces, Mo Li Hua. The title of my talk is Mo Li Hua as Cultural Texts. What can music bring to Chinese studies? Chinese studies? or is a more recent terminology. And all these terms, of course, embodies a set of expectation and knowledge and also a time period. The study of China has historically been focusing mostly on literature, history, and philosophy. And the way they approach this is based on textual records, written words, or any kind of notation. And so the primary study in Hanshi or Chinese study, the entire production of knowledge is based on a visual cue and through a thinking process. Oculocentric, that means most of what people know, do about Chinese studies is about uh, visual and also thinking. Of course, what is missing in this is a long tradition of what about things that you cannot see. So this is what I want to bring to the table in the discussion. What can music bring to Chinese studies? As I get a little bit more, now I hate to use the word old, a little bit more mature and experienced, I, I find that this may be a time that music has to ha have a share at the table of, of Chinese studies. And I'm really glad to see recently more and more scholars bringing it to the table. The focus on studying music is actually approaching in a very unique and very limited myopic angle. Any music department, school of music, and you would likely to see the subdivisions such as musicology, theory, music education, performance, composition. And what they do and trying to cultivate is music as art, as this mysterious thing that's coming from only the chosen one would be visited by muse in the middle of the night and come out with this great composition. And so we have this great composers, genius. And the things that they study in music, uh, in the academy mostly, is about uh, music itself. It's about the things itself, study about the structure, the form, stuff about the genealogy of how one style morphs into the other. So in other words, this whole study of music and also the way of looking at music was entrenched and stuck in some kind of older paradigm uh, that I find missing and also would be beneficial if we can take those things and insert it into Chinese study. Music, as we all know, is something that we like to listen to, enjoyment that you play, sort of an experience that would alter or elevate your spirits, your emotions. So music is one of those things. However, I want to point out music is a sonic phenomenon that it does, does not function as language on the fact that music is not semantic specific in the sense that a sound does not have a specific meaning attached to it. So for example, the sound law, we don't have a meaning, but you know that C-A-T, cat, it's not me, it's not you. It's that four-legged animal running in my house <laughs> called Tashi, that's cat. In other words, when we talk about music, all of a sudden we're getting into this very nebulous and 
uncertain kind of universe. Music and meaning is one of those very big topics that there's no answer, and people can write books and books and books about it. That's what makes music interesting to talk about because of its changing and also transformative nature. And the other thing I want to bring to the table is music is always produced and consumed by people. Even if it's music made by a machine, someone has to go there and push the on button. So therefore there's an intentionality built into that. And then each piece of music was produced and made in specific contexts, whether it's a personal context, it's a uh, social context, a national context, or any kind of context. So any kind of music production is within the context. And since it's within the context, so therefore music carries certain kind of important uh, information because it's shaped by the ethos of uh, the value and the sentiment of the time and place. So in other words, I want to sort of set up my talk as music could be read as texts, not written texts such as the traditional Han Shu study of text, but in the Clifford Getz in sense of social texts. So Clifford Getz is an anthropologist who writes about, look at society as a text that could be read, a text that has its own value that presents and narrates culture and society. And it's also expressing certain social and cultural ethos. So therefore, I would want to say that music performs and functions uh, in that same vein. And if we hear, if we read, if we interpret music in that sense, we actually get a lot more information. And this information is important in our understanding of a culture, society, or even a discipline. I want to pay homage uh, to two very important disciplines that inform my thinking. Uh, one is ethnomusicology. Ethnomusicology is a discipline in music that deals with uh, the relationship with music and society. And it looks at uh, music as culture. And the other one is sound studies, deals with sound. And music is actually not appear in the study. Any kind of sonic phenomenon is worthy of study. And what it does is this new discipline asks us to think sonically, not just to hear sound as entertainment. These two studies greatly inform my work. And I want to point out this auditory significance is attention to the power and the effect of sound production and reception. So the key here is the production of sound and the reception of sound. So that is where I'm coming from, where I think an important thing that brings into, bring to the table of Chinese study. The question people ask, are you saying that in Chinese study, nobody studied music? I said, no, there's a, a long history of looking at music in the historical document through the ages. And then you have a rich history of Lu Xue, the study of temperament, calculation of pitches, and then, of course, the fourth item is Gu Pu, the practice of Gu Qin, because it's a scholarly endeavor. So therefore, we have tons and tons of record of Gu Qin music. And then since the Song Dynasty on, and we also have lots of records of literally writing songs and lyrics. So these are a traditional 
Chinese way of, of dealing with music. But what is missing here is mostly we're talking and looking at the upper class aristocracy, the literati, dealing with music that is considered worthy of discussion. And so we have in Li Ji, Yue Ji, is talk about what's the proper way of doing music. What is the proper way of perform? What are the proper way of listening to music? What are the right kind of music? And the sort of temperament is also for the uh, validation of each dynasty, the calculation of Huangzhong, and then Wuxi uh, music, of course, uh, to consolidate this class of people, literary practice of Wuxi. So these are traditional Chinese approaches to music. So their approach to music is, of course, shaped by the historical tradition of its culture. So Mo Li Hua, <laughs> Mo Li Hua is a song. Sometimes I would call it the best known folk song of China. For those who, Jiu Ling Ho, please, this is your learning experience. This Mo Li Hua came from that era. Molihua is a folk song from East Central China. And in fact, there are many versions of Molihua. For the longest time, Molihua was regarded as a, a Jiangnan regional folk song. So therefore it became an icon of Jiangnan uh, identity. And of course, Jiangnan as a, a region as famous in the popular thinking as, of course, Jiangnan versus Beifang. So Jiangnan, Yuan, is more lyrical. Jiangnan food is more tasty. And Jiangnan is Yu Mi Xiang. Everything about Jiangnan has that kind of a lyrical quality to it. And there's a Han folk song, and of course. So this is the identity of Molihua. What I want to do is to trace the circulation and consumption of Molihua and describe the different, how different people use this song and the institution uh, that associated with it. So Mali Hua has been something that's been able to create a different kind of image and also projected sense of universe. I want to lead you through four different phases. Uh, the first one is Mali Hua as regional folk song. The second one is Mali Hua as object of exotic gaze. A third is Molihua as emblem of national pride. And last one is Molihua as topic of scholarly debate. All right, Molihua. Initially, it was a folk song from Jiangsu province, popular in Shanghai, Nanjing, Zhejiang, and Yangzhou. And this song depends on older uh, documentation. It has a very different tune. But nowadays, even the collection of 
a Chinese folk song, Zhonghua Minga Ji, they only produce one version of it. This particular version is representative of the so-called Jiangnan lyrical style. And it's so popular and so great that in 1920s, this song was actually recorded in the burgeoning uh, LP recording industry by EMI Pase. Mo Li Hua as a Chinese folk song from the Jiangnan region. So that's a very important piece of information that mostly uh, people who know Mo Li Hua will not remember or at least uh, recognize. By seeing Mo Li Hua as regional culture and icon of regional regionalism, just some takeaway from this. We have now firmly been told that you have the Mingge song of the people. So it's a way to differentiate some more elevated elitist uh, genre versus Mingo. And this song obviously reinforced certain uh, social hierarchy between high and low or between the elites and the commoners. And folk song also as song of the people. And then you have regional culture versus national culture. So this song sort of set that up. So this is the first takeaway of Mori Hua's existence. Secondly, Mori Hua as exotic gates. Uh, this is perhaps has a longer history. The melody that we know was actually collected by various Europeans uh, in the 18th century. Uh, this is very interesting. One of the famous story goes, the British diplomat, George McCartney, uh, he went to China in order to, on behalf of the British government, open China for trading. His job was to travel from Guangzhou all the way to Beijing. And as a British diplomat, he would have soldiers and his secretary. And so his secretary, John Barrow, is the one who actually nicely recorded the history of the journey. John Barrow was able to publish his journal, Travels in China, recorded everything from custom people, his observation, and related to our talk, music. The account of John Barrow has been quite important and significant because it realized and also established European way and understanding of what Chinese culture is and what Chinese music is at that time. John Barrow is quite an interesting person. He recorded about 10 pieces of music. And this 10 pieces of music, he of course used staff notation. Is number nine, give you a sense of this tune. This is a very typical sort of platonic type melody. That's what John Barrow has recorded. And of course, the notation itself does not represent what he heard because when people perform music, they usually process, elaborate, and also change the fundamental melody uh, called jiahua, adding flower to the melody. So that's a very traditional way of performing music. On page 361 of the modern collection, we have the song. Notice the name is called Mu Li Hua. And of course, he may have heard it in a, a regional dialect. 
So this tune is precisely the melody that most people know now as Moli Hua. I mean, play just the first phrase. John Barrows recorded this version that is for reason that he probably didn't realize. And now the Molihua we know is based on this version. Good for him that recorded Molihua. But John Barrows is European, of course, coming from a European music background. He has something to say. He said, he's never heard anyone who can sing with feeling. That's the first not very positive thing, is it? Those Chinese can sing with feelings. And people would sing the song Mo Li Hua, which seems to be the most popular song in the country. So in other words, John Barrows probably heard this song many times uh, on his trip. That's why he said that. And he went on to say Mo Li Hua in London at the time, there's already a version written by this German guy, Herr Hitner. Hitner has presented his version. He has changed it according to what a European piece of music should sound like. And that upsets John Barrow. He said, now I'm gonna give you the real thing, the specimen of the plain melody. What John said here about Chinese music actually didn't come out of nowhere. And I want to recall a two very important foundation of European attitude towards music. One is first reported by Matteo Ricci in his journal. Uh, I just want to point out a few highlight is that no instrument of the keyboard, music is monotonous, and they are very highly flattered by their music. But to us, they sound like nothing but a discordant jangle. That started out very neutral, but at the end it's, ah, they don't, they don't know any better, it's monotonous. Uh, this is 16th century, Matteo Ricci, who supposed to know a lot of Chinese stuff. Now, John Barrow's initial reaction was predated by Matteo Ricci, and then followed by Van Elst's. This notion of what Chinese music is, uh, not that good, not that precise, it's monotonous, it has been sort of recurring trope within the, the European circle. But uh, this particular attitude is very interesting because outside uh, the European circle, the Japanese took a very different uh, attitude. In 18th, 19th century in Japan, there was kind of music called Shingaku, Qingyue. It actually was one of the elite music the Japanese learned from China. So in the 18th, 19th century, the instrument Yueqing, the round lute, was the most popular elitist instrument in Japan. So this song, actually, Molihua, made into at least three collections of Shingaku. So in other words, prior to the 19th century, this song already was brought to Japan. So similarity between the popularity of this song in Shingaku and in Europe is very interesting. And this, of course, 
despite uh, John Barrow's condemnation, or at least observation, that this song has also entered into a phase of 19th century European culture in which uh, Chinese culture and product has been seen with a little bit of, I call it, love-hate relationship with China. They like certain things about it, but they hate a lot of things about it. So this phase of Xinhua Sari has produced some very interesting thing. On the one hand, because of the view of China is exotic. People speak, play music monotonously. They don't have any feelings. And yet this culture is very interesting. So there's this love-hate relationship. Puccini is the one who really capitalized on it. And we know that earlier on, at the end of the 19th century, the German composer, Gustav Mahler, and he has written a piece called Song of the Earth, and in which lyrics were supposed to be, or the melody was supposed to be inspired by the poem of Wang Wei. So in other words, Chinese thinking and knowledge has been widely circulated in Europe. And this particular touring dog, very famous, is told as a Chinese story. What I want to point out here is Puccini has actually took the Molihua, the version that John Barrows had quoted, and stuck it into his piece. Just listen to a little bit of that. All right, just give you a flavor of it. Puccini is actually was orchestrating this piece and changed a little bit, but the entire melody was in this piece. And of course, this is not the end of how Molihua being quoted or appropriated. 1934, the movie Good Earth, stick this Molihua into a, a scene. I was able to find the trailer of it in which the dance, supposedly performing some kind of regional opera in which it was the song Molihua. All right, you heard that. Perform in a very funny way, but the longevity of, the, of this tune continues into 30s. Second takeaway of this Molihua as exotica and also as exotic gaze is this song sort of entrenched uh, this European attitude towards uh, the outsiders. Eurocentrism has been embedded in the narrative. China is exotic, China as a mystical nation, and of course, Chinese culture as inferior. They don't know better, they don't play with feeling. So in other words, this love-hate relationship created, on the one hand, they admire and like certain things about Chinese culture, but it's still under the umbrella of not that good. Something is wrong here. So that's the second takeaway. And the third takeaway is completely overturned following the, the European two centuries of Molihua. Now, all of a sudden, the position of the role of Molihua 
is no longer original folk song of Jiangnan. Now it has stand up to be icon of a great nation. So I use three examples of it. One is Tan Dun's work. Tan Dun is composer from China, and he has becoming one of the most celebrated composer. Here is the piece written in 1997 for the symphony to celebrate the Hong Kong-China reconnection. Here, Tan Dun was commissioned to write a piece for the ceremony, and he wrote a piece called Tian Di Ren Symphony, 1997, and in which he used different kinds of material: bianzhong, the cello, children's choir, and lo and behold, becomes the stunner. You get a sense. This is the long symphony in which the thirteen movement, but this one also emerges after the Pianzhong sound and this glorious、uh, orchestrated tune Molihua. And as if the 1997 Molihua is not enough, he was fascinated by this tune. So therefore,、uh, in the closing of the Olympic in 2004, announcing the coming of Beijing Olympic. And at the end of the show, he was also asked to orchestrate this music. Longer an icon of this folk culture, but showing this is a vibrant, active, danceable, and also kind of upbeat culture in this. As if these two versions is not enough, Tanjin was asked by 2000 Olympic to write another symphony, and of course, he was so interested in this tune that he wrote it again. This is really great. So Tanjin again, he was selected to write this piece. There are about four thousand pieces submitted, and he was the one chosen. He said, "This is a glorious, heartwarming tune, full of respect." Furthermore, he said, "This resonates two thousand twenty-four hundred years of metal belt with a tune that is inspired certain harmony from Puccini to Olympics. This melody is a gift." 
from the Chinese people to the world's athletes. Now, this kind of thinking has already used and repositioned the tune by extension, the nation within a very different kind of geopolitical framework. I'll show you one more. The famous singer, Song Zhuying, was able to present a concert in the uh, Washington DC Kennedy Center. 好一朵美丽的茉莉花 all right, the trope, the theme of Molihua, has really been repeated so many times that at times we don't know is she the Molihua or the Molihua represents the smiling nation or is it about a nation that has now the prestige, the power, and also the ability to be seen in a global stage. Again, Molihua, Jasmine, has been used in this particular situation in a very unique way, if you were to read uh, social and cultural texts. So the third takeaway is Molihua is sound of a great nation. This notion of a great nation has its own great music. Uh, Molihua now is the sound of a great nation. And Molihua also presents uh, Chinese culture as validated, accepted, and even are venerated on the global stage and because China is an important global power. So the fourth is the very hot topic of Molihua in the scholarly circle. The search for origin and authenticity has always been a, an important scholarly pursuit in the history of Chinese intellectual work. So the fourth takeaway is uh, this nowadays this very small regional culture has been valorized. It's worthy of scholarly pursuit. And it also shows that the Chinese scholarly pursuit has opened up its territory. It's not just about the elite written words, okay? And it's signs of a mature scholarly world. Now we pay attention to Minjian stuff. We're not just looking at written words. We're gonna look at a different kind of uh, genres and also different kinds of records. Yet, at the end of the day, it's still reinforcing the significance of text. So very briefly, Amolihua has transformed from a regional folk song that had many different versions to a national and global cultural anthem. And now this is one song that we all know. But this song has carried many different meanings. And these different meaning precisely allows us to see how music works as text. I want to bring back the, the quote that I gave earlier. Uh, it's attention to the power and effect of sound's production and its reception in the formation of social and political orders. So these are very important things. It's not just music play, but we have to pay attention to how the sound is being made, how music is being made, how it's being received, 
and circulated within a particular sociopolitical environment. And that's how we get the different meanings and the different information that will bring to the study and the understanding of China. Now, I want to close by playing a clip of another version of Moliqua. Where does it go? I don't know, but this is latest transformation or manifestation of this truth. I don't know what John Barrow or, or Van Aus would say because they play in unison. And yet it's against a recurring drum beat, a rhythm section, and also a different kind of performance context. Thank you very much to Professor Lau for the uh, informative talk that alert us to this great textuality and of uh, music and how important music is for us to understand the culture. And uh, I really appreciate the music. It's very uplifting uh, during this uh, depressing moment <laughs> in human history. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. And thank you, Professor Ling, for your uh, moderation. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for China Studies at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We offer degrees from bachelor's to PhD with a diverse faculty dedicated to studying and understanding China from a multidisciplinary perspective. Special thanks to Yin Yijiao for the music. Please check out our website at ccs.cuhk.edu.hk or find us on social media. <laughs>